It's you are holy. You are worthy of all praise and all adoration. You are mighty. Father, you're the fullness of perfect power and perfect love. And here at the beginning of a new year in our lives and in the life of this congregation, we confess that we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we do know you hold tomorrow. And we're comforted in that truth. We rest in that wonderful truth. Sovereign of all, we worship you and praise your name this day. At the same time, confessing our sins. Confessing every evil thought. Confessing our sinful speech. Confessing our ungodly behavior. Father, forgive us. Help us to rest in you. Help us to trust you. Help us to please you in all we do. We thank you for your church. And we pray for this church in particular, Lord, that you would care for our leadership, give them wisdom and strength. That you would care for each of us as members, that we would minister to each other in such a way that would bring you honor and glory, that we would love each other in such a way that this community may come to know you because of it. Particularly, Lord, those that are sick, those that are homebound, elderly. We pray that you might encourage us more and more each day to serve them and to minister to them, to help meet their needs. And we pray for that for our entire congregation. Lord, meet, meet the needs of this church our spiritual needs, our physical needs, particularly our financial needs. And Lord, <clears throat> you've carried us together for these four years, and we, we have no reason to believe you're going to let us go. And so help us to walk ahead with faith. Help us to be obedient to you. Draw us together with your love. Change us too today, Father, through the power of your word. As our pastor proclaims it today, we pray that you would bless his preparation, his speech. Open new truths to us. Change our lives because we've heard your word this day and it's powerful and it's sharp. And then, Lord, it... When all is said and done, send us out from this place to proclaim your word, to 
exalt you in all that we say and all that we do and be faithful to what you want us to be. Use this congregation, Lord, to change this community for your glory and your glory alone. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I want to invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. Pick up uh, where we left off last week in John's Gospel. Uh, picking up in verse 7 in just a few moments. You know, uh, as we were fellowshipping this morning before Bible study, uh, reflecting, I was reflecting in my mind on uh, the fact that it's our fourth anniversary as a church and uh, interacting with different folks out there. Uh, There's a common theme that kept coming up. Uh, people kept saying to me, can you, can you believe it's been four years and uh, there's, do you, those of you who've been around for the four years, do you feel that somewhat in your own hearts this morning? I, I did. On, on the one hand, it does. It, it does feel like it was just the other day. It can't possibly be four years, right? Um, but then, uh, when I begin to think about it, you know, what was going on before that happened? What was I doing back then? Uh, it seems like a lot. It seems like a long time ago. I can't really remember what I was doing back then. That may be more a testimony to my memory than anything, but. Um, it is good to reflect upon that and think of God's faithfulness to us, isn't it? Um, I, I can vividly remember going through that process in our previous congregations of merging two churches and becoming Grace on the Ashley. And uh, we can vividly remember many of those kinds of conversations along the way and fears and anxieties that, uh, that probably all of us shared in some way, shape or form. And folks on the outside saying, oh, that's just never going to work. Um, just never going to work. It's not possible. Uh, Christians don't get along that well uh, when they like each other and when they know each other. And you're talking about uh, two groups of people who don't know each other and aren't sure if they like each other. And um, smashing them together and um, expecting them to to function as a body of believers and as a church and love one another and, and, and uh, do the work of, of ministry together. It just, it's not possible. Heard that plenty of times. And uh, you... Uh, frankly, have have proven those naysayers to be um, full of baloney. Um, you have. Uh, the Lord has, and you have. Uh, we all testify that it's by God's grace that this has worked, that, that God has um, has made this church what, what he's made it. And it is. It's by God's grace alone. It's not any genius on the part of the leadership. I can tell you that. Uh, we, we pray and depend on the Lord uh, totally. And we knew from the beginning, if it wasn't for the Lord, this would never, never work. Um, this would never work. And um, it, it is a testimony to the work of God. God intends to do something in this church and through this church and this community. And, and the fact that we're here in four years is, is clear evidence to me of that. I hope it is to you as well. Um, but it's also a testimony, I think, to your faithfulness as a congregation. And I, I say this on really kind of out of my own heart, but I know it reflects uh, the thoughts and the, the feelings of the other leadership on our elder team as well. That uh, And we talk about this from time to time in our elders' meetings. We're just amazed at, at what you've done, really, at how well and how faithful you've been to the Lord in these, in these four years. How, uh, how you have made this merger really happen and how you've made Grace on the Ashley become a great church. 
simply by your willingness to be obedient to the Lord, by your willingness to put up with inconveniences that are small sometimes and inconveniences that to you are big sometimes. Uh, But your willingness to overlook those things, not make issues of them, to love people when they're not particularly lovable towards you, uh, all of those things are, are testimony of the fruit of the Spirit in your lives and the fruit of what God's doing in your lives. And because that, uh, of that being so prominent in the life of this church, um, the merger has worked and the church has become what it is. And uh, so uh, I say just from my heart and, and on behalf of the other elders, we're, we're truly grateful, truly grateful for you, for what you've done uh, to, to, to make grace on the ash of the church that it is. And uh, look forward really to with excitement and anticipation to the years ahead to what God holds in store for us. I hope you look forward with anticipation to our fifth anniversary next year and our tenth one, you know, however many years that is down the road. And, and, uh, and, and I trust many anniversaries being my lifetime in ministry and, um, and, and yours. So um, we give, give the Lord praise and we thank you. John chapter 11, we pick up uh, the story uh, that John is laying out for us, this narrative uh, of, of a great and, and amazing miracle that Jesus performs, the raising of this uh, dead man, Lazarus, his friend. And we, we, we pick this up in the midst of John's gospel. For those of you who haven't been a part of uh, the study, um, John has been presenting to us Jesus Christ, the man. But he's been presenting us the man and his deeds and his words with, a, with an end goal in view. And the end goal is that we might come to understand that he's not just a man, that he's much more than a man, that he is, that he is God in flesh. John is trying to convince us of that, that, that Jesus is more than a man, that he is deity, that he is God in flesh, that we would see that, that we would believe that, and upon seeing and believing that, that we would place our faith in him, and in, by placing our faith in him and trusting our lives to him, that we would come to have eternal life in him and through him. That is John's goal, and he's been systematically uh, showing us Jesus throughout. And we've been seeing that. I hope you've been seeing that as we've been working our way through. And he's been, in these uh, later chapters that we've been looking at, uh, showing us some of the miracles that Jesus performed. And he's showing, showing us those things uh, to, once again, convince us that Jesus is more than a man, that he's God in flesh. And, and he shows us consistently the miracles John does to validate the things that Jesus says. In other words, consistently John reports to us Jesus said something, and then he tells us about a miracle that Jesus does, and the miracle serves to validate what Jesus says or to prove it. Uh, in one case, back in John chapter 6, he said, John reports to us that Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, right? Do you remember this? And then he reports to us a miracle that Jesus does that validates that claim. Do you remember that one? Where Jesus takes a few fish and a few pieces of loaves of bread and he multiplies them miraculously to feed thousands of people. So it's a, it's a miracle, a miracle of creation, of multiplication. But the miracle isn't the point. The point is the claim that Jesus makes of who he is. The miracle then just points us to that claim and validates it. The bread of life. A couple chapters over in John chapter 8, he talks about uh, another claim that he makes. John reports to us Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. You know, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but he'll have the light of life. And then he reports to us right on the heels of that, Jesus doing a miracle. He opens the eyes of a, of a man who's born blind in John chapter 9. The miracle, the giving, giving sight to a blind man, the bringing light to this man who's lived his entire life in darkness, was a remarkable miracle. But the miracle 
was an arrow pointing back to the claim of Jesus to be the light of the world. This, this miracle validated the claim. And once again, when we get to John chapter 11, John is do, reporting to us the same kind of thing. He's showing us the same kind of thing. If you will, it's the final installment in John's pattern here. He's going to tell us another claim that Jesus is going to make. And he shows us this, or surrounds that claim with this miracle, uh, once again, to validate the claim. And, and so the central issue in this whole chapter is this claim of Jesus in verses 25 and 26, where Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Another claim that Jesus makes about himself. No human being makes a claim like that. Nobody runs around saying I'm the resurrection and the life. Except God in flesh. Because he truly is. And so this is the claim. And surrounding that claim is this miracle of Jesus raising this dead man from the grave. He claims to be the resurrection and the life. And he raises a man who was dead back to life to prove. To prove that the claim is true. And so this miracle that surrounds this claim serves to illustrate and validate the claim. And Lazarus coming out of that tomb is going to become the validation of Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and life. It's also going to serve as a preview of his own resurrection that's to come. But here the the central issue that Jesus is claiming, the central issue that surrounds this claim is the issue of death. Now, hunger is a real problem. And when you're hungry, you need to eat. Right? Fair enough? Your stomach will be grumbling in a few minutes. If it's not, you'll be thinking about that very issue. I'm hungry. I need to eat. You have to wait a bit right now, though. But, Jesus, it's one thing to be hungry and to have food delivered to you miraculously and to, to meet that need. It's, it's another problem to be blind, to not see is a terrible problem. And to, to have your eyes open and to be able to see, having not seen your whole life, is a great miracle. And it's a, a, a great provision, if you will. Hunger and blindness are real problems, but death is the ultimate human problem, isn't it? There's no problem worse than death, at least from a human perspective. You see, death is no respecter of persons, and and as human beings, we are completely and utterly powerless over death. Isn't that right? And I never feel more powerless as a pastor than I do at a a funeral home or in 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 a funeral sermon when you're standing over a casket of someone who's dead. Because I know I am completely and utterly powerless to do anything about that. I have no power, no authority over death whatsoever in and of myself. I can't conquer it. I can't defeat it. And none of us can, ultimately, on our own. Human beings ultimately have no power over a tombstone. Only God can defeat death and deal with death. Fair enough? And so when John gives us this claim of Jesus, I am the resurrection and life. I have power, the ultimate power, over death. I can, I can, I can bring what's dead to life. It's a clear claim to be God, no, none other than God, because no one else can do that. And this miracle that John is telling us about, that Jesus performs, is intended to validate that claim. And so we begin to see it last week, the story as John gave it to us. So he begins the chapter by telling us, uh, well, ends the last chapter by telling us that Jesus has, has fled from the area of Judea. He's fled from the area surrounding Jerusalem because the religious leaders are in a frenzy and they, they want nothing more than to, to kill him. They want him dead and they want his message shut down. And so Jesus and the disciples have fled. They've left, gone across the Jordan River and they've traveled about a day's journey away. 
and John reports to us here at the beginning of this chapter that as Jesus and his disciples are away, um, he receives a message via a messenger. Do you remember this? Have you forgotten in a week? I hope not. The messenger comes, says to Jesus, there's a problem, Jesus, your friend Lazarus, he's very sick. He's nearing death. That's the message that Jesus gets. And John wants us to know uh, not very much about Lazarus, but he does want us to know that Jesus loved this man. And it was a dear friend of his that was sick and nearing death. And then John reports to us that what Jesus does really surprises everyone. He intentionally hangs around for a couple days where he is. He does not act immediately. He stays put for two full days. And in the meantime, Lazarus dies. In the meantime, his family is hurting bitterly. They're grieving. They're weeping. A funeral takes place. And all of this happens while Jesus remains absent and does not come. And John told us that there were two primary reasons why Jesus took this particular tactic. One, John has told us that he wants to show them his glory. He wants them to get a glimpse of his glory. And secondly, he tells us that it's for their good. So this is all not making a whole lot of sense. Jesus' friend is sick and he's dying and Jesus doesn't go. He doesn't go because he loves him. And he doesn't go because it's for their good for him not to go. And all of that's counterintuitive from a human perspective. So as we dive back into the text around verse 7 this morning, uh, we're going to see Jesus finally act. We're going to see him finally after two days. He's going to act. And, and we're going to see that he's going to act in his time. And, and we're going to see what he does. It's not going to surprise us then that Jesus is going to act in ways that people don't expect. He's going to act on a timeline that people don't understand. And because he doesn't do what they expect him to do, and because he doesn't do what they expect him to do when they expect him to do it, they're overcome with grief, they're overcome with fear, they're overcome with doubts, and they're filled with questions. The same kind of experience that you and I have when God doesn't act the way we expect him to act on the timeline that we expect him to act on. Right? I think we all know that experience. What it is to have that happen. We desperately want God to act on our behalf, and he doesn't act the way we expect him to act. He doesn't act the way we pray for him to act, and he doesn't act in the time frame that we have requested. And the result often in our lives is deep grief. It is often fear. It is often doubt. It is often questions about who he is and what our relationship with him really is like. And there are going to be two primary things that we're going to see people question in Jesus. They're going to question his love, and they're going to question his power when he acts. And those, incidentally, are the same two things that we often question, his love and his power. It's odd that they're going to question his love because he's going to tell us he's doing what he's doing specifically because he loves them. And it's also going to be odd to us that they're going to question his power because they're about to see him act in power in ways that they could have never possibly imagined, right? But they are going to question those two things. And get this in your mind as we walk through this. To almost everyone that we meet in this narrative, the circumstances of life have spun completely out of control and they don't understand what's going on around them and why. There's only one person that understands what's going on and why. Who's that? Jesus. Because he's completely in control of what's going on and why. Right? The one person who knows what's going on. The one person who knows how this is going to turn out. 
The one person who knows exactly what he's going to do, why he's going to do it, and how it's going to benefit everyone involved in the end, that one person is going to navigate through this whole thing being questioned and doubted by the people who don't have a clue what's happening. How frustrating must that be? Think, think about that as we walk through and you listen to these interactions that Jesus has with his disciples and then Mary and then Martha and then the crowd. And it's not going to be any surprise to you by the end we're going to hear Jesus weeping, right? When we see that the one person who is sovereign, the one person who is all-powerful, the one person who is in control, who, who has given every reason to believe he should be trusted, is going to find that at every turn, even the people closest to him are questioning him and doubting him. That's what we're going to see as we walk through. And it begins with his disciples in verse 7 of chapter 11. Let's just read through uh, verse 16. John tells us that after this, this is after the two days of delay, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble. Because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken about his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. So that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. What an interesting interaction, right? Jesus delays, and after two days, he looks at the disciples and he says, All right, guys, it's time to go. Let's pick up. Let's go. It's now time to respond to the message that we received two days ago. Let's go to Judea. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Let's go. I need to wake him up. Here's the plan. Go to Judea. Wake up Lazarus. Interestingly enough, he doesn't say we're going to go to Bethany because we know that's the town. We already have been told by John that's where Lazarus lives, right? In Bethany. Jesus doesn't say we're going to go to Bethany. He doesn't even say that we're going to go to Lazarus' home. He says we're going to go to Judea, which is the region or the area. And you wonder, why does he say that? Well, perhaps, I I think it's reasonable to think, because he intentionally wants to use a term that would bring up in his disciples' minds, this is the home of the enemies. These these are where the people who hate us are. We're going to go there. Let's go back to that region that we were just run out of. Judea was the home of, uh, of the religious leaders who wanted to kill him. They were still pretty ticked off, and they still had murderous intentions for him. And this was the area they had just left. And so I, I think Jesus means to get a reaction from the disciples, perhaps even to test them. Will they trust him? Will they trust him with this directive? Will they, will they be good with this plan? Well, you know the answer to that, right? The disciples were not at all good with this plan, right? Here's what they say. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Translation into our language Have you lost your mind, Jesus? Don't you remember who's there? Don't you remember what happened last time we were in that joint? They nearly killed us. And nothing's changed in the last few days. The reaction is exactly what he gets from them. And it's a reaction of disbelief and fear, right? 
That's what it is. It's disbelief. I can't believe you would even suggest we should go back there, even for Lazarus. He's our friend, and we love him. But I'm not sure he's worth going back there. It's, it's too much risk. There's too much danger. We're afraid. They knew Jesus had the ability to heal from afar. They'd seen him do it. So why go back? Why do we need to go back there? Why do we need to go back into the danger? Why do we need to go back and put ourselves in that situation? A fearful situation when you could handle it from here. Perhaps legitimate questions in some way. But they're afraid. And, and life, their life and their experience has given them some very valid reasons to be afraid, right? When somebody runs you out of a town because they want to kill you, and somebody tells you, we need to go back there, are there legitimate reasons there to be afraid? If you're in their shoes, are you legitimately... Has life given you some legitimate reasons to be afraid? Most definitely. Most definitely. But Jesus is going to give them better reasons to not be afraid. And that's the pattern that I want to stick in your head. Life gives us often lots of reasons to be very afraid. Jesus gives us better reasons to not be afraid. That's the, that's the two-part equation here. So once again, Jesus' plan is going to come into direct conflict with human expectations. This is not what they expected was going to happen. This was not how they expected him to respond. What do you think they expected him to do? Say, you know, hey, Lazarus is going to be good. I got this. Right? And Lazarus is fine. Maybe. Grieve from a distance. Maybe they expected him to take the safe and secure the, the, the rational in their mind's root. Why do you think they expected him to do that? Why? Because that's what they would have done, right? In their minds, that's what any rational human being would do, right? But Jesus isn't just a human being. He's sovereign God in flesh. See, John wants us to see that. He wants us to see that contrast. And in seeing the disciples' response here, their fear, their disbelief, introduce you to a Christian myth, a myth that exists amongst believers. It existed to some degree in the hearts of these disciples, and it roots itself sometimes into your heart and mind. I want to expose it to you this morning. Here's the, there's a couple of these. The first one is this, this first Christian myth I want you to see. Christ always leads his people to safety and security and away from trouble. That is a myth that we unknowingly adopt. That when we're following Christ, that the way he is going to lead us is, is to safety and security and away from trouble. We, we sometimes come to think that God's plan for our, life, all, our lives always involve safety and security and blessing and comfort. If we just do the right things, he's obligated to provide those things for us, right? If we go to church, if we pray, if we read our Bibles, if we do all of the Christian ritual things that we're supposed to do that, that fall under the category of being faithful to him, then he ought to then be faithful in turn to us. And that faithfulness looks like keeping us safe and secure and away from trouble. Sometimes we even begin to feel entitled to those things. As though God owes them to us as payment for our faithfulness. And then when he doesn't provide them, and he calls us to follow him into danger, 
We're overcome by fear and anxiety. We're overcome by even anger. And in some, in some places, in some situations, we walk away from them altogether. I'm a pastor. I've talked to a lot of people about their faith over the years. And more than a few times, I've talked to someone who is completely disconnected from the Lord. And you begin to hear their story. And it's a story that at some point in their life, they went to church. At some point in their life, they, they lived an outwardly Christian life. And they bought this myth. And then at some point in life, their safety and their security and, and their comfort was shattered by something that God led them into. And it destroyed their faith. Because they had bought into this. They had unknowingly adopted a heresy. And because they couldn't put it in a category in their minds, they just walked away. They just walked away from him. David Wells writes, All too often the church has turned to a God that we can use rather than to a God we must obey. We've turned to a God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God before whom we must surrender our rights to ourselves. He is a God for us, for our satisfaction, not because we've learned to think of him in this way through Christ, but because we've learned to think of him this way through the marketplace. You see, in the marketplace, everything is for us, for our pleasure, for our satisfaction. And we've come to assume that it must be so in the church as well. And so we transform the God of mercy into the God who is at our mercy. And if the sunshine of his benign grace fails to warm us as we expect, if he fails to shower prosperity and success on us, we'll find ourselves unable to believe in him anymore. And that's so true. In so many cases. Because we believed often a lie, whether overtly or subconsciously, that somehow, that somehow we believe that Christ always leads his people to safety and security and blessing and comfort. In fact, there's a whole realm of the evangelical universe, even in our day, alive and well, that intentionally is defined by preaching that message. It's called the prosperity gospel. And that movement teaches that myth as the gospel. It takes what is an absolute overt lie and presents it as the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you should avoid anyone associated as a teacher with that movement. I'll just say it that way. Because they will lead you to a place that will destroy your faith and not build it. Listen, because we often buy that myth, we don't have a category in our, in our minds for the idea that sometimes God intentionally leads us to places, situations, circumstances, seasons that are frightening, risky, challenging, and uncertain. Because we believe that myth, we don't have a category in our mind for that. That God might that he might intentionally lead us to places that are terrifying, that are troubling, that are hard, that cause us to be tempted to be afraid. The disciples' questioning of Jesus reveals some things about the status of their faith, doesn't it? It reveals some things about the status of their faith. They, they, they don't fully grasp his sovereignty, do they? Do they? They don't. They wouldn't have responded that way if they fully grasped his sovereignty. They don't fully grasp it. And they also don't fully grasp his power. That's another thing they don't. They don't fully grasp that he's in control of all these things because if they believed he was in control, it's no big deal to go back to Jerusalem or back to Judea, right? They also don't fully comprehend his power because what are they afraid of? They're afraid of the enemies 
and what the enemies might do to them. And so they, they, have, they have missed the idea that Christ has power even over the enemies, right? They, they question his power. They've not fully grasped his sovereignty nor his power. And, and Jesus is going to speak to both of those issues. And part of his purpose in going back and raising Lazarus is to address that problem in these men. Do you see that? He wants to show himself. He's, John tells us he's going to show them his glory. But what he means by that here is that John specifically is going to show them his power and his sovereignty because they haven't understood it to this point. By the end of this miracle, they're going to see that like they've never seen it before. And they're going to grasp it far better than they did at the beginning. But they don't know that at the beginning. Nor do you and I at the beginning. That's why Jesus says to him a little later, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. That is the most bizarre situation if you don't understand what's going on here. Lazarus has died, and I'm glad that I was not there. And he tells them, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you might believe. He's not glad that Lazarus died. He's not happy that his friend is in a grave. He's glad what? He's glad that he wasn't there. Because the fact that he wasn't there is going to help him show them things that they need to see so that they might believe, so that their faith might grow. When he says that they, so that you might believe, he's saying to them, so that your faith that is lacking right now will grow, will expand, will be in the end what it is not here. It's a remarkable statement. It is better for his disciples for him to not have gone. It's better for the development of their faith. This miracle that he's going to do is going to have a profound impact on their faith. It really is. When Lazarus, that man who's been dead four days, walks out of the tomb wrapped up, their faith is going to skyrocket. It has to. It has to, right? So this is what's going on. Jesus responds to them, responds to their questioning of him with a mysterious kind of a statement here. He says, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble, but he sees the light of this world. But if he walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, it's a proverb that that seems mysterious on the surface, but it's actually the the meaning of it is quite simple. Um, He talks about 12 hours in a day simply because unlike the way we look at night and day and time, um, the Jews of that day, they, 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 they what's the word? grouped the hours of daylight into 12 hours, not hours like our hours, but a different kind of hour. And at different seasons, you know, different seasons of the year, daylight is what? There's more and less. And so regardless of, you know, where we were in daylight savings time, which they didn't have back then, obviously, um, there were 12 hours of daylight. So they understood what that meant. It seems mysterious to us because we don't talk in those terms. And so Jesus says, look, if you walk in the daylight, you don't stumble. Now, on a physical level, that just makes sense, right? You go walking around in the daytime, you see everything, you don't fall down. You go walking around in pitch black dark, there's a good chance you're going to stumble and fall. Easy? Easy. Right? Okay, okay. I'm just checking to make sure you're still awake with me. But spiritually, Jesus is making another point. He's making the point that there's a time for daylight, and that time frame is fixed. Nobody can change it. There's nothing anybody can do to to expand the hours of daylight, and there's nothing anybody can do to shorten the hours of daylight. It's a fixed it's a fixed time frame. There's nothing any human being can do to to make more daylight. Don't you wish we could sometimes? 
You know, over the holidays, don't you wish you had a couple hours you could just, you know, whip out a potion and, you know, have an extra hour of daylight? Man, go invent that. But Jesus is making it. It doesn't happen. You, there's nothing anybody can do to, to give more time, and there's nothing anybody can do to, to shorten daylight. Daylight here in Jesus' proverb is symbolic of the time allotted for him to do his ministry. What he's trying to say to them is this. Look, and John has been recurring this theme throughout the gospel. You've probably caught it. This issue of time. That Jesus has a time. That there's a divine timeline that's playing out in all these things. Do you remember this? We've seen this a lot of times. John reports to us something happens, and then he tells us that Jesus says something like, but my time has not yet come. Or John reports to us, such and such happened. They picked up stones to kill him, but Jesus left that place because, John tells us why. Well, his time has not yet come, right? That there's a divine timetable that is set. That is set. Jesus has a time. There is a time for him to be arrested. There is a time for him to go on trial. And there is a time set for him to go to the cross and to give his life as a substitutionary atonement for you and for me and for every sinner who will place their faith in him. There is a time frame that's set. And Jesus is using that time frame, using daylight to illustrate that. And what he's saying to them is, look, these things are set. And there's nothing that any friend can do to expand the time frame, and there's nothing any enemy can do to shrink it. Do you get that? Guys, we can go back wherever we want to. Those enemies don't have any power over the divine timeline that I'm working on. They, can't, they cannot kill me until my time has come. That's what Jesus is trying to say. He's trying to say to them, I'm sovereign. I'm sovereign over this. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of going back to to Judea. I will not die before it's my time. You will not die before it's your time. I'm sovereign over time, and I'm sovereign over life and death, and he's going to raise Lazarus to prove it in a little while. You know that. And you know, the same is true of you and me, right? You realize that, that that you have a time too, and I have a time. We, we, We operate and we live on a divine timetable, and God is sovereign, completely sovereign over the time frames of our life. There's nothing I can do to expand the time frame for my life, and there's nothing really that I can do to shrink it. Nor is there for you. We don't have to live lives of fear, fear of death, fear of danger, fear of risk. If we're walking with the Lord, if we're walking in obedience to Him, we are, in a sense, invincible until our time. It's true. It's true. But so many of us live in fear. We're absolutely captivated in fear of moving or doing anything risky. John MacArthur said it this way. He says, if you're walking in the spirit and serving the Lord, you have your day or your time. Being a coward and taking all kinds of precautionary steps and not being faithful isn't going to lengthen it. And being bold in the face of enemies isn't going to shorten it because it is what God has ordained it to be. It's true. You know, God calls us to do things that are sometimes terrifying. He calls us sometimes to go places and do things that are risky. That generate within our, our flesh fear. Sometimes, because of the, the experience of our life, legitimate fears. But here Jesus gives a better reason not to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid even though we feel afraid. Why? Because he's sovereign over those things. He's sovereign over our lives. He's sovereign over our death. And nothing is going to change his timeline. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid. It's good to know, isn't it? When God calls you to do something fearful, 
like go on a mission field somewhere to a place that's unknown or uncertain? When God calls you to a lawless place like Mexico City, like our friends who were with us this morning, and serve the Lord there in a lawless place where there's drug cartels and death and kidnapping and all sorts of other horrible things that are a very real potential anytime, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Jesus makes that that message to his disciples. He wants them to understand he's sovereign over time, over life and death, and that he's all-powerful even over the enemies. Two things that they question, his sovereignty and his power, he's trying to tell them, you don't have to be afraid of those things. And then he goes on to say, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I go to awaken him. And I love this part. This is one of my favorite parts of the whole text. Not because it's so profound, but because it's just plain funny. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Isn't that great? I mean, Jesus is trying to use a simple analogy that he, I think, expects that they will get. Lazarus has fallen asleep. It was a you know, common Old Testament illustration for death. We're going to go wake him up. I'm going to go wake him up. Lord, if he's fallen asleep, this is great. Lord, if he's taking a nap, he'll, he'll get up. He'll wake up. The alarm will go off. The birds will tweet. The kids will run around. Something will happen, and he'll wake up. We don't have to go there in the danger to wake the guy up. Somebody else can do that. It doesn't say in the text here, but I'm pretty sure that um, that it should say Jesus rolled his eyes right there at that point. John doesn't tell us that. That's my interpretation. Is that, is that license? Do we have that? So Jesus, of course, John tells us, look, you know, Jesus has spoken of their death. They thought he meant he was taking a nap. I'm not sure they really thought that, but it might have been just that way of trying to get out of it. So Jesus rolls his eyes and tells him plainly, Lazarus is dead. He's died. He's died. He's not taking a nap. What I mean is he's dead. Now, that also tells us something about the omnipotence of Christ, right? Because the message he got was what Lazarus is. He's sick. And the messenger, we presume, has gone. If he if he hasn't gone, he stayed with him. No new messenger has come and said Lazarus died. We can piece the timeline together and figure out that Lazarus probably died on the day the messenger left to come to Jesus to begin with. But the messenger doesn't know that. But two days later, Jesus knows that. How does he know that? Because he's God. He says, but for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you might believe. So let's go to him. Let's go to him. Let's go, let's go, let's go right back to where our enemies were after us. That fearful place. Let's go there. It isn't, it's interesting. You know, he says, I'm going to go there and I'm going to wake him up. I'm going to awaken him. I don't know what the disciples thought about that. I don't know what they thought. I can't imagine. But I'm pretty sure they were just as shocked as anyone else when Lazarus walked out the tomb. But there is one in the mix, uh, Thomas, who John tells us called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, to get this, let us also go that we might die with him. You gotta admire Thomas, right? Thomas gets a bad rap in the Bible. If you think of the name Thomas, what do you think of? If you grew up around church, you think of doubting Thomas. Why do we think of doubting Thomas? Sure, he has an episode later where he doubts some things. But right here, I mean, this is courageous Thomas. This is, right? This is courage. That's courage. He doesn't fully get it. He doesn't understand exactly what Jesus is trying to tell them. He hasn't grasped what's getting ready to happen. Well, you can say this for the guy. He's courageous. 
All right, Jesus, if we got to go, guys, let's go with him. We'll all go die. That's pretty cool, isn't it? I mean, I think that's admirable. Do you not think that's admirable? I think that's admirable. I'm not convinced that you think it is, but I think it is. I mean, the truth of the matter is they're not going to die with him. Jesus has just told them, I'm sovereign all this, and the time has not come yet. I have a time, and the time has not come, and until the time comes, we're safe. He doesn't get that. He doesn't get that he isn't going to die. He also doesn't get that they can't possibly die with him. The kind of death Jesus is going to die is a cup that only he can drink and nobody can die with him like that. But Thomas says, hey, I'm willing to go. If that's what's, in the, if that's what's down the road, we'll go with you. That's an admirable kind of courage. He doesn't get everything, but at least he's determined this. He's determined that it's better to die with Jesus than to stay safe without him. And that's, that's admirable. That's pretty admirable to come to that conclusion. That it's better to die with Jesus, to go where he leads you and to die with him, than it is to stay safe apart from him. That's something worth knowing. And that's a conclusion worth coming to in your heart. He's willing to lay down his life with Jesus, for Jesus. And it's a sign that he's a true disciple, isn't it? Isn't that what Jesus told us in Luke chapter 14? If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Thomas was willing to bear his own cross and go after Jesus, wasn't he? He was. Stop calling that man Doubting Thomas. Call him Courageous Thomas. You know, there are a lot of believers today still who are trapped in prisons of fear and anxiety because life has given you great reasons to be afraid and to be anxious. And like the disciples, you can't understand why God would allow these circumstances into your life that are there. You can't understand why he would lead you down the path that you've had to travel you can't possibly understand why you'd have to go where you've had to go and do what you've had to do and experience what you've had to experience and you're afraid and you're frightened and you're anxious. And I think to some degree all of us know what that feels like. John Ortberg said this. He said, fear has created more practicing heretics than bad theology ever has. For it makes us live as though we serve a limited, finite, partially present, semi-competent God. And that is how we're practically living when we are overcome with fear and when we're overcome with anxiety. We're living as though we serve a limited, finite, partially present, semi-competent God. But we do not serve a limited, finite, partially present, semi-competent God. We serve an unlimited Infinite, omnipresent, completely all-competent God. I wanted to say more about this issue of fear. Because it keeps coming up in the lives of the disciples and it keeps coming up in our lives. And I'm convinced that it's one of the things that keeps us most often from being faithful to what God calls us to do is fear. We don't share the gospel with the people God calls us to share the gospel with because we're afraid. We don't faithfully go where he calls us to go and do ministry because we're afraid. 
We disobey the Lord out of fear. And instead of living and operating in faith, we, we're wrapped up with anxiety. And we don't have to live that way. In John chapter 14, a little further over in the gospel, life has given the disciples more reasons to be afraid. And they are. And Jesus speaks to them because they know he's about to die. He's explained that and he's getting ready to go away. And they're troubled. And in John chapter 14, verse 4, he says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Following that, he says, he's going to say, I'm the way. The truth and the life. Jesus gives a great pattern there for dealing with fear and anxiety. He says to them right at the beginning, stop allowing fear and anxiety to rule over your hearts. Do not let your hearts be troubled. He's not denying the fact that life gives us lots of reasons to be afraid and to be troubled, is he? No, he's not. He understands the reality of our lives. He understands that we're going to go through things and he's going to lead us through things that give us great reasons to be afraid. What he says is don't let your hearts be troubled. And what he's saying is you have to refuse to panic. Do not allow fear to captivate your heart and rule your life. Don't let your heart be overcome with these things. Don't let them dominate your thoughts. Don't let them dictate your actions. Stop letting fear. Stop letting anxiety captivate your heart. And he says there's an alternative to that. What is it? Trust in God. Trust trust what? Trust also in me. You don't have to allow fear to dominate your mind and your thoughts and your emotions and your decision making. You don't have to allow anxiety to, to, to dominate your mind and your thoughts and your decision making. You don't have to, they don't have to rule you because you have an alternative. And your alternative is to trust in me. Trust in the fact that I'm sovereign over every one of those things that you're afraid of. Trust in me that I'm powerful, that I am more powerful than anything you're afraid of. Afraid of. Trust in me. That's the alternative. The alternative to fear is faith. And he tells them, you need to stop one thing and start the other. Stop living in fear. Start exercising your faith. That's what he tells them. Gentlemen, you're falling apart right now. Not because of the circumstances that you're in. You're falling apart because you're not exercising faith. That's what he's saying to them. That's what he was saying to them before they went to go to Lazarus' home. Gentlemen, you're afraid and you're anxious and you don't want to do what I've called you to do. It's not because of the circumstances that you're afraid. The circumstances are not the problem. The problem is you're not exercising faith. And your faith is small. That's the problem. And if you're here this morning and you're absolutely captivated by fear... And anxiety in your life. The problem is not the circumstances that are going on in your life. The problem is faith. And it may be for that very purpose that you're going through these things. Because God would intend to come to you in the midst of your fear. And in the midst of your anxiety. And show you his glory. With the end goal of 
expanding your faith. That's what he was doing for these disciples. It's what he was doing for Mary and for Martha. And perhaps, just perhaps, it's what he's doing in you. But you don't know how it's going to go in the end. He does. You know, these disciples had faith. They'd given up everything to follow Jesus, right? They had some measure of faith. But faith isn't something that you put on once and forget about. It's something you have to exercise every day. And it's something that that the more you exercise it, the more it grows. It's kind of like a rubber band. You ever, you know, fidgeted with a rubber band? Maybe I'm the only one who does that. You stretch that thing, you know, just nervous tension or whatever. You know, the rubber, you do that long enough, the rubber band starts out like this. You stretch it long enough, and that rubber band that was like this to start with before you fidgeted with it ends up like that. Why? Well, because you've stretched it a lot. It's kind of how our faith operates. Our faith is sometimes small, and God has to pull at it and stretch at it and take us through circumstances that pull us to places that are uncomfortable and painful. With the end goal that when we come out on the other side, our faith is bigger than what it was when we started. And sometimes that's the only way for our faith to grow. And it was for these guys. I don't know what you're living through right now. I don't know what kind of circumstances are going on in all of your lives. I wish I could. I wish I did. I wish I knew every detail so I could pray for you more specifically. I'm certain that uh, you understand fear and anxiety. I'm certain you understand those things. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that if you've been walking with the Lord very long, that you've encountered those kinds of seasons in your life and you have reacted just like those disciples, with fear and anxiety, questioning the sovereignty, questioning the power of God over your circumstances and over your life. Maybe you are right now. Maybe like some of the people that I've encountered, you've been trapped in fear and anxiety for an awful lot of years. Even anger at God because he hasn't responded the way you expected or in the timeline that you determined he should have. Can you hear me this morning when I say to you, God is not distant and unconcerned with your life. Christ is not far from you like you might imagine. He didn't go to Bethany instantly to see Mary and Martha, but he was not distant or unconcerned. He knew exactly what was going on, and he was absolutely in control of every circumstance. Are you willing to consider this morning that quite possibly whatever it is that's causing you to be afraid or anxious is part of God's plan in your life? And part of his plan is to, in the midst of what you're dealing with, show up in your life in some way that you don't expect. Give you a glimpse of himself in ways that you've not seen him before. With the purpose of that you might believe. That your faith might expand and grow that you might know him in ways that would be completely unique apart from going through what you're going through. And can you believe that on the other side it will be worth it? Will you exercise your faith today in that way and trust in him? Let's pray together. Before I pray, just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to close. I want, I just want you to look at your own life in this area of faith and fear. Pray that God would strengthen your faith, eradicate the fears. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. 
and you're struggling with fear, there's a lot of reasons why you're afraid and probably some good reasons for you to be afraid. Because this morning you are not in a personal relationship with the one who is sovereign over the circumstances that are causing you fear. And in this very moment, you can place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God in flesh. The one who is all-powerful and all-sovereign. He will forgive your sin if you'll ask him. He will receive you to himself as his very own child this morning if you'll submit yourself to him. He'll forgive your sin and save your soul. And he will become for you that all-powerful Savior. Lord Jesus, we, um, we look at our lives often only through human eyes. And there are times when we navigate through situations and circumstances that we absolutely do not understand. And I'm sure that there are some this morning who right now are navigating those waters in their lives. They don't know why things are the way they are. Why you've chosen not to come and to help them in the way that they've asked. They don't understand why you have chosen to remain distant for a season. They're not sure about your power. They're not sure that you're truly sovereign. They wonder and they question. They can't see the big plan that you have, and they can't understand what you're doing through all of this. I pray for my brothers and sisters who might be in that situation this morning, that you might help them to choose right now, in this moment, they might choose faith in you. That they might choose to believe by faith that you are all-powerful over every circumstance. That they might choose to believe by faith that you are all-sovereign over everything. That they might choose to believe right now that you are ultimately good and your intentions for their life are ultimately good. That they might know in this moment that you're with them. That they might trust in this moment that you will give them everything they need to make it through. Help them, Lord, to exercise faith this morning. True faith. And Lord, for those who might be here this morning who don't know you as Lord and Savior. I pray that in these quiet moments they would see you for who John's presented you to be, God in human flesh, come to save us from our sin. No one could bring a dead man from a grave except you, O Lord. May they see that. May they believe it. May they run to you this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have questions, or you just need somebody, 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 or you just.